0: Reader
1: by Bibi
0: I think you may have got it wrong with the Sèvres, with Emily Harrington's creamy white vases. I mean, it was only just beginning to be around at that time. And probably not in England. I'm quite good on porcelain. Maybe so. My turn. I think you may have got it wrong about Scott's wife. Do you really think she had to giggle her way into capturing him? Do you think that all pretty young women are full of artifice and are lined up in opposition to you? Might it be that they're not all trying to take your man away? I'm not sure why you have to get so political about it, so women against women. Is that all it boils down to? One type versus another, all fighting for the same thing, for the man as the trophy. Now you're getting all political. The men are not the trophy, and neither are the women. We all of us fight, men and women. It's what we live to do, although some of us have other things to do. Why do you care about her? Why are you so sympathetic all of a sudden? Anyway, I haven't finished the story of that very day. Come on. You want to hear it, don't you? You want to hear what happened next? I'm not sure I do. I'm going to tell it anyway. So, ha! To you. I'm not in the mood. Maybe next time. Well, read it when you feel like it. I don't care. But I'm on a roll now. So, where were we? The party. The escape. I left it all behind me, and I got on a bus that headed into the West End. It was good luck that I got on the right one, as I know nothing about buses, and I sat half terrified at the thought of where I'd end up. I kept glancing out of the window, waiting for things I might recognise. And inside... Well, inside I felt like an alien, shockingly exposed for what she is. People looked different to me then... Moments after my confrontation with the wife of the man I loved. They seemed to be aware of me, for starters. That's a very uncomfortable feeling. You think maybe something is giving you away, something extraordinary about your features, or maybe some sort of stench. I was conscious of squirming under the direct hit of each furtive glance. Classic squalid little paranoia, isn't it? Then suddenly I'd had enough of buses, and pretending I knew where I was going, I got off, not far from Waterloo Station, and hailed a cab instead. But I felt the same awkwardness I'd experienced in the bus. I was sure I was the object of hostile fascination by the taxi driver. Everyone in this whole world could see what I was, could surmise my blighted potential. That's how melodramatically one thinks at such times. I was on the floor, you know. "'Knocked out and defeated, I was as low as a person can get. "'But that wasn't a novelty for me. I'd been there before. "'I'm beginning to think it might be my rightful home, "'because I'm so keenly aware of it. "'I can feel myself hitting the stony ground, "'and I'm always badly bruised and yet always jolted to my senses. "'As soon as I land, I start planning my ascent again. "'In that cab, I was at the base of a mountain.' When I stepped out of it, on the high street in Islington, I was already beginning to climb. I was exhilarated. Truly, that's how long it took for me to hear the call to recover and to apply myself to it. I was about ten minutes late for the reading at the bookshop. The door was locked, and I could see at the other end of the ground floor the audience of about fifty people sitting in a special little arena among the bookshelves. I knocked on the door, and a member of staff, a girl in black shirt and trousers, trotted up and let me in. Miss Malone, sorry, we have to lock the doors. Were you waiting a long time? I was inside, and another girl was closing the door behind me. Why are you playing that? The first girl was caught out. What? she asked. That, that music. Why are you playing that? She hesitated, but I walked on towards the lit end of the bookshop, where I could see my table and the regulation glass of water Um, she said poor squirming thing Mull of Kintyre, I believe it is What has that got to do with this event? The book I'm reading is set in Kent and Africa None of my books have ever been set on a Scottish island so why are you playing it? She shrugged It's a relaxing piece of music She looked at her harried colleague Isn't it? "'We often play it,' explained the other. "'I had reached the audience and saw my agent beside someone I guessed to be the bookshop manager. "'This latter woman saw me and extended her arm. "'But I simply went up to my desk and picked up the book and introduced myself. "'Please forgive me for being late. "'London can be so hectic for country gals like me. "'I'd like to start off with a passage from my new book, The Season for Silk.' And then, perhaps, we could kick off with some questions. And that's what I did. I had already known what I was going to read, and I read it. About 10 minutes it took, and each time I glanced up from a page, I saw those stupid, conceited faces just bathing, wallowing in my words. Christ, why do people bother to come to such things? What can they possibly learn? It's hardly life-changing. Why do they have to look so smug, like they've joined an exclusive club? Sometimes I feel nothing but contempt for people who admire me. Present company accepted, of course. I finished, and they clapped, and I rewarded them with a serious smile. And all the while I thought, I've lost him. I've lost the man I loved. I just handed him over. I gave him back. Then the questions began. A girl of no more than twenty, her hand trembling as she held it aloft. I pointed to her, and she lowered her eyes in a fallacy of shyness. Why would you put your hand up at all if you didn't want your voice to be heard? Don't tell me it's because you truly want to hear the answer to your fatuous question. I really loved a little box of gods, she simpered. It's where you started the ball rolling, with your eternally frustrated lovers— Did the idea of maintaining that motif come from there, or had you long planned that theme before you'd even written the first book? You're an English graduate, aren't you? I thought. All that matters is that you ask a question to prove that you've read something. I could say yellow now, and you'd be happy with that answer. The girl beamed at me apologetically, as if to say, I'm sorry I've thrown you such a curveball right at the start, but that's just me. I smiled back. "'The latter,' I replied. "'Instantly another hand went up, not waving energetically, "'but a sharp, business-like jab into the air right in front of me. "'The hand was in a good pinstripe sleeve. "'The sleeve was part of a good suit, and the suit housed a good-looking man, "'older than me, his hair grey, his eyes very blue. "'He sat with his legs crossed. "'I understood him to be gay, though probably not officially.' I nodded for him to start. I was very impressed with the war widow's dance class, he began reflectively, stroking his chin. I actually believed he was telling the truth. It seemed such an admission, like a confession. You took a subject so esoteric that few would have heard of it, and you brought it out into the open air. My question is, why are you so wrapped up in sourcing such obscure fragments of history, Wouldn't it be easier just to make them up? Aren't you tempted to do so? Are you a frustrated history teacher rather than a writer? Well, it's rare that I need more than one sentence to answer a question. It's rare, actually, that I feel inclined to answer any question. But he seemed to want a proper answer, to deserve one. This is where I stand, I said. I'm neither tempted to make up historical fact, nor actually do so. For me, the pleasure is in seeking out these fragments, as you call them, and then researching them to death. I have learnt as much as my readers by the end of the process. Does that make me a teacher, rather than a writer? Well, I don't think so. I am a writer. That's what I always wanted to be, and that's what I tried to do, to the best of my ability. He nodded his thanks, and we left it at that. I can't remember the rest of the questions. I wanted to get the show over with. I had a sense in that parallel place of thinking that functions while you communicate at a shallower level that I didn't wish to go home. It wasn't a home without him. I would move house, see to it as soon as possible. As the signing session finished, the manager offered her thanks and I received some applause and I turned and gathered up my belongings. When I straightened up, he was there, beside me, the man in the pinstripe suit. Have you time for a drink? he asked. I've got to catch my train, I said. That's a shame. I wanted to buy you a drink. It can't be easy standing up before a bunch of people and answering their wiltingly stupid questions. I think of the royalty check, I said. It gets me through. I liked the way that he was not fawning or obsequious. But all the same, I was wary. Just a drink, I asked. No bloody literary questions. I was suddenly so weary, so desolate. Just a drink, he confirmed. And we left together, probably to the amazement of some people there, though maybe not. I imagine the staff were pleased to see the back of me. He wasn't gay. He wasn't cowed by me. He was amused by me. Get this, he seemed to like me. We had a couple of drinks. He made me feel rather relaxed and forgetful of the recent past. He talked quite comfortably about himself and asked nothing about me. He very easily became my friend that night, because I needed a friend. I needed someone to like me. I wanted one person in the world not to think me a villain. It turned out he worked in Whitehall, a career civil servant, an amateur historian, too, who was genuinely intrigued by my plots and considered my books an extension of his hobby rather than a Nazi entertainment. He lived alone in a flat in Pimlico, a divorcee of some three years. He was only six years older than me, but the role we established there and then was that he was the wiser and more responsible parent figure, and I the flightier youngster who needed his guidance and steady hand. We eventually got fed up with him having to travel backwards and forwards between my cottage and his flat. I wanted him to keep the flat, but he insisted on doing things properly, on his being around to enjoy me during my ups and take care of me during my downs. He came into it with his eyes open, with his wits about him. Just talking about him now makes me feel grateful and cared for. There is no great eruption of love at the thought of him. "'There is gratitude. "'Let me tell you about getting published. "'To get published, you are either a lucky bugger "'or a bloody lucky bugger. "'I am of the former variety. "'Who can say if I would be a writer now "'if I hadn't been married to an editor who was crazy about me? "'Having said that, my books are very nice earners for my publisher, "'and I make a decent living from them as well. "'My books are not going to be on the school curriculum "'in fifty years' time.' they will be forgotten, and so will I. But in the meantime, I can hold my head up high and call myself a professional writer in constant employment. I can put it on my passport. That was the dream. Then there are the bloody lucky ones, and they were published because they came up with a genuinely good idea and had something astonishing to say. When you read their groundbreaking piece of literature, You spend days afterwards thinking of love and death, etc. But then they struggle to produce something as good the second time round, and they can't live off their writing. They spout on a lot about their art, and they take justifiable pride in their great single achievement. But listen, they will die too, and they will be forgotten. Only a very, very few are remembered, and then only for a short time. Leaving something to posterity is a lousy reason to write. I will do anything to protect my status, not just as a writer, but as a successful one. And so I will do anything to keep you on side. I don't foresee a future of you writing for me. Of course not. I will return to doing the work myself. But you're getting me out of a bleak moment of struggle. If it's recognition you want, then okay. Maybe we can think of a way of getting you into print somehow. If it's financial reward, then naturally I'll stump up the cash. I may be neurotic and desperate, but I'm not mean. Or unfair. Let us complete this book, and let us both learn from the process. It's now that matters. This moment. This crisis. Will you put aside what I know you are beginning to think of me? Hilary, will you save me? Hilary was played by Rebecca Charles. Monica by Georgina Sutton. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey, with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books. An established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities, Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio.